Good morning. We're going to begin our study uh, this morning in the life of David. And um, David is one of the most loved characters in all of the Bible, certainly in the Old Testament. And there are volumes written about him or by him and more written about him and by him than uh, almost any other character in the Bible. His life um, is one of joy. His life is one of depths of despair, unquestioning allegiance and faith in God, and heartbreaking sin. Anyone who cannot see himself or herself in the life of David just isn't looking hard enough. Okay? And so we want to, as we study the, the life of David, we want to begin to look at him, his character, how he, how God formed it, how God made him to be a man after God's own heart. For that's what we want to be, a man or a woman after God's own heart. Now, if you were to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, don't have to do it, I'll save you the time. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is the great chapter of faith. And in that chapter, we see Abraham and we see all the different Old Testament characters and some great thing about them. But when we talk about David in Hebrews, this is what it says. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of David and Samuel. That's it. That's all we get from the book of Hebrews. And uh, so we're going to take our time because we have the time to go through his life slowly and carefully and really look at the life of David. Well, before we start, um, some of you may not be completely caught up with the history of where we are in Israel's history at this time. And so we thought we'd do a quick review, and then uh, we'll get right into the life of David. If you remember, Israel had been in bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years, and God sent Moses as a deliverer to deliver them out of the land of Egypt. They spent 40 years in the wilderness with God guiding them every step of the way. He appeared to them through the pillar of cloud and through the uh, pillar of fire. Wherever the pillar of cloud got up and moved or the fire moved, they would move. And he was guiding them and leading them in that, in that way. He provided for them every need that they had in the wilderness. Food in a desert every morning. Water from a rock that followed them wherever they went. Uh, amazing, amazing account of what God did for them. He protected them from enemies and, and all of the rest of it. They had sandals, it says in the scripture, that didn't wear out for 40 years. Now, how many pairs of shoes have you replaced in your lifetime? Okay, this year. <laughs> I'd like sandals like that. But he guided them every step of the way. Now, after the generation, or after the death of the generation of the Israelites who first came out of Egypt, you remember that God told them to go into the promised land. They uh, did not have faith in God to believe that God would uh, defeat their enemies. And so God caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And that first generation that had escaped from Egypt died in the wilderness. The next generation, their kids and their grandkids, were the ones who went into uh, the promised land. Now, if you remember, God had made a promise to Abraham. And he had said to Abraham one day, he put him up on a hill and he said, all right, look as far as you can. And that's going to be all of your land. 
It's all yours. That was the promise that God had made to Abraham. This is going to be your land. And Israel was to go into the land. There were people that were living in the land at the time, nations that were living in the land, and they were idolatrous. And God had given them 400 years to repent of their sin, to turn to God, and they refused. And so God was now going to send his people, the Israelites, into the land of Canaan, and he was going to destroy the nations, and he was going to set up his people in the land uh, of Canaan. Now, he was going to do this uh, in stages. And as they grew, as they were able to settle in, they were going to take over more and more territory. But once they got in, through the leadership of Joshua, they began to have great you know, battles and they fought and they gained this part and that part and the other part. But there were sections of the land that they never defeated. And those sections of land, <clears throat> we still had uh, nations like the Ammonites, the Philistines who were a thorn in the flesh of the Israelites for, for decades, for years. And God permitted those nations to remain, not that he wanted them there, but it was to test Israel or to work with Israel that they might trust him to bring about the complete um, accomplishment of his purposes. But Israel, once they got into the land, they kind of settled in. Life got to be normal. And then they began to look at the nations that were still there. And I said, you know what? We kind of like what they're doing. They have gods, too. And their gods provide them with this or with that. Or we like what they're doing. And they began to incorporate worship of idols into their worship. And God caused them to be defeated over and over again. In fact, if you look through the book of Judges, the whole book of Judges, it's, it's uh, cyclical. And what you have is Israel sinning and God sending uh, trouble into their uh, land, uh, using nations that were, would defeat them. And then they would finally get to a point where they would cry out to God for a deliverer. God would send a judge or a deliverer and he would rescue them from whatever the trouble that they were in at the time, and they would return to the Lord for a time. And then they would kind of go back to the old way again, and God would bring another uh, dilemma into their lives, and they would become frustrated with that, and they would cry out to the Lord again in repentance, and God would send another deliverer. And the whole book of Judges just goes through that pattern over and over and over and over again. So we come to the uh, books of history in the uh, Old Testament. And you have uh, Samuel, and you have uh, Kings and Chronicles. And as Eric pointed out in the last couple of weeks, Israel was facing uh, still a number of enemies. And they were just frustrated by this whole thing, and, and they you know, had, had enough. And so they, they said to Samuel, God raised up uh, the prophet Samuel, uh, Israel was in a in a spiritual stupor at the time, really, um, and he he sent Samuel to them to try to win them back or to draw them back to the Lord, and to some degree they did, but not not fully. And so they um, they said to Samuel one day, "Look, we want a king. We've got trouble on every side. The Philistines are at our doorstep, and they're coming in at harvest time, and we're we're getting the." crops in we're bringing them in from the fields and they're coming in and they're taking over uh, all of our crops we're just frustrated by this whole thing we want a king look at look at all the other nations they have kings why don't we have a king well who was their king god 
God was their king. Had he failed them? Had they failed him? Yes. <laughs> but he hadn't failed them. But they were frustrated, and they, they decided to call up and ask him for a king. Samuel was horrified by this, and uh, yet the Lord said, look, let them have the king. Let them have a king. But warn them that the king is going to tax them, is going to take their children from them, is going to put them to slave labor. He's going to be more of a problem to Israel than um, where they're at right now. But nevertheless, they wanted a king. So the first king that they chose was Saul. Saul had barely been anointed as king, and he was faced with this first challenge. Eric brought this out a couple of weeks ago. In the uh, northeast section of Israel, there was a nation called the Ammonites, and they uh, attacked the town of Jabesh-Gilead. And so uh, Jabesh-Gilead said to them, wait seven days and uh, before you attack us, and we want to see if Israel will come and defend us, if the nation will come. And so they said, whatever, you know. <laughs> They're not doing anything now. We can wait seven days. So they waited seven days. And so the men of Jabesh-Gilead called Saul and said, look, you're the king. Do something about this. And Saul uh, sliced up an animal and sent it to the different tribes of Israel and said, look, if you don't come and help us, then your cattle are going to be chopped up just like these cattle were. They said, we'll be there. <laughs> so they came and they fought against the men of Jabesh-Gilead and uh, they won. And so Saul uh, was able to rally these people together, the, the nation together, and as a result of that, he was really, at that point, recognized as uh, king. Well, in the second year of his reign, in fact, let's take a look uh, at 1 Samuel chapter 11, and we'll just pick up from there. So 1 Samuel chapter 11, and we'll begin reading at verse um, 10. This is the story of the Jabesh-Gilead guys. Therefore the men of Jabesh said to the um, Ammonites, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. And so it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. He gave credit to the Lord because it was the Lord's doing. And uh, the Lord gave, gave him victory that day. Now, if you go over to chapter 13... Verse 1 it says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Mishmash and the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent every man to his tent. So what he's doing here, this was the, uh, the Jabesh-Gilead incident was the first real test of his leadership and he succeeded so he had all these crowds of men there that had participated in this battle he sent most of them home three thousand of them he kept two thousand he kept under his command a thousand under jonathan's command 
And uh, that was the beginning of forming his um, army, if you will. How old do you think Jonathan was at this time? Just a guess. Early 20s. Yeah, probably early 20s. That would put Saul at about what age here? 40s? Yeah. So best of my calculation, and, and I can go through a whole long explanation if you want to hear it someday, but Saul is probably 42 years old here. So just to give you kind of a perspective on where, where he's at, Jonathan is probably 22. Now, I know I'm going to pop a lot of bubbles today because of all the Sunday school pictures that you've seen of Jonathan being exactly the same age as David, and they were two you know, buddies that were, were you know, identical twins almost. Not the way it is, okay? Uh, Jonathan is probably 22 years or more David Sr., okay? Shocking as that may sound. But, we'll, but again, if you're interested in the details of it, I can show you how we figure all of this out. Okay? It's very, the Bible doesn't give us a real clear uh, picture of this is the age and this is the age and that's the age. You have to do a lot of math starting many, many, many years later and working backwards to get to it. And uh, that's about the age that these guys were. Okay. So <clears throat> the Philistines, that's the next test of uh, Saul's command. The Philistines were troubling Israel. As I mentioned, every time the harvest would come in, they'd go out and they'd raid wherever the harvest was being gathered and they would steal the harvest for themselves. I mean, what's the point in working if you can steal from somebody else, right? And that's what they were doing. And so they would go out into the uh, sheep, sheep, uh, wherever the shepherds were, and they would take the best of the sheep. And they were just being obnoxious. But they were gaining territory back from the Israelites. Now, if you were to look at a map of Israel, <clears throat> you would see that the west uh, side of Israel, in fact, most of your maps in your Bible will show you this, where the Philistine territory is. But they were making headway into uh, the, the center of Israel and uh, places that were not called Jerusalem at the time, but what we would call Jerusalem today. They were making advances even that far, um, and it was really spoiling Israel's fun. So, one day, Jonathan with his thousand men decides that, you know what, we're going to beat these guys back, and we're going to take back some of the land that they've got. And so there's this little town uh, called Geba. And this is the first of three major battles that um, were fought under Saul's reign, um, dealing with just the Philistines. And so the, Jonathan says, all right, guys, let's go. We're going to go and we're going to capture back that town and we're going to give it back to Israel. And so he goes off and he wins the battle. The Philistines were very upset by this and they mustered thousands of chariots, whoops, and thousands of foot soldiers, or horse, actually horsemen, and now Jonathan and Saul are in deep trouble. Okay, That's not what they expected to happen. And so you have these thousands of chariots and thousands of horsemen that are now prepared to attack Israel, and they are in deep, deep trouble. It totally freaked out the Israelites. One of the reasons they were so afraid was because the, the Philistines had done something very clever. They owned the, um, 
is it called a smelting factory? I'm not sure if that's the right term for it. But the, <clears throat> the idea, they were the ones who were skilled in making iron. The Israelites were not. And so the Israelites, any iron they needed, they would have to go and buy it from them. They had no capability in Israel to make iron weapons. Now, they had tools, implements for, um, you know, doing farming, but anything that they needed sharpened, they didn't even have the tools to do that. They'd have to take them to the Philistines. Sharpen these for us, would you? Okay, now the Philistines are pretty smart guys. They're not going to take uh, 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 an agricultural implement and sharpen it into a sword or a spear or something like that. They're pretty smart, all right? And so they kind of kept Israel at bay by doing this. And so there were really only um, a handful that had swords. We know that Saul had a sword. We know that um, uh, Jonathan had a sword. But the Israelites were not well equipped militarily. Okay, And so that gave, obviously, a tremendous advantage to the Philistines. So <clears throat> now they, here they are coming out with iron chariots, horsemen, and Israel standing there with pitchforks and, and you know pieces of wood or sticks. That's it. All right? And so the people of Israel were terribly afraid by this. <clears throat> and uh, so it says in the scripture that some of them, uh, let's take a look at it, verse uh, chapter 13, verse 3. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet together uh, throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it and said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, <clears throat> 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in uh, Michmash in the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. So they just hid, bury themselves in the sand, and maybe everything will be okay. And if there's no more room in the, in the pits and no more room in the caves, then let's just hightail it out of here. And so many of them, as we read next, some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan. Why not? Get away and put a, a, a body of water between the two of you. And as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling so even those that stayed with saul were frightened they were afraid of what was about to happen now eric mentioned this last week so i'm not going to go into great detail but saul at this point was told by samuel to wait for seven days and on the seventh day samuel would come and he would present an offering to the lord obviously what he was doing was he was going to offer to the lord and ask for god's protection ask for god's blessing in the battle now could Israel have won that battle with such odds? Yes, no, yes. How could they win? That's it. Okay, that's the only way. Humanly speaking, there is no way they could have won that battle. But God had defeated the enemies without swords and weapons before. You know, he could certainly do it again here. If you remember, you know, the story of... Um, pitchers that were broken and uh and and all of the army just standing around with light that was it that's all they had and how did god defeat the uh 
the enemy's there. They fought against themselves. And God gained a victory that way. God could have done anything he wanted. He could have opened the earth up and swallowed them all. It, God is not limited in how he defeats his enemies. But Israel was afraid. And, uh, and so Saul saw that the people were leaving. He was down to 600 people at this point, And he says, you know what? Enough. I can't hemorrhage any further here. And he offers the sacrifice himself. And he no sooner does it. And Samuel shows up and says, why did you do this? You have stepped into a position of priesthood that, you, that doesn't belong to you. You have disobeyed the Lord. Now, in doing this, let's take a look at it, uh, verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Wow. And so this is the first time that Saul is told by, the, by Samuel, by the Lord, that the kingdom is going to be taken away from you. You could have had your kingdom established forever in Israel. But because of your disobedience, because of your foolishness here, it is going to be taken away from you. And it's going to be given to another, a man after God's own heart. That's where we get that phrase from, by the way, uh, about David, a man after God's own heart. So, that's what's happening in Israel uh, with Saul. Now, many years later, we're going to kind of go back for just a moment. Good storytelling always has these, you know, backups and then forward again and meets the meets where we left off so we're going to back up for just a minute remember many many years late earlier there was a love story written in the bible about a man named boaz and a widow named ruth one of the most loved uh books of the bible the book of ruth boaz was a wealthy landowner he owned uh, a great plot of land in the town of bethlehem and uh, there he, he grew grain, they had vineyards, and uh, he had quite a production um, because he needed servants to come and to harvest for him. And if you remember, it says in, in the book of Ruth that he would go out to his servants and he would greet them. He was a very happy man, and it seemed like his employees or his servants really loved him. He lived in the town of Bethlehem, as I mentioned. He and Ruth had a son whose name was Obed. Obed later had a son named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons and two daughters. The name of the youngest son was David. Okay, so you've got the family line here. So David was the great-grandson of Boaz and Ruth. Now, as far as I've been able to calculate, and it's, this is kind of an interesting thing to me as I, as I see this, it seems that David was born in this little town of Bethlehem the same year that Saul disobeyed the Lord the first time, that passage we just read. So if Saul is 42 and Jonathan is 22, David is just born. Okay, So it's about a 22-year difference between uh, those two. And so David is born, he's a baby. And yet the Lord says to uh, Saul... Uh, through Samuel, he says this. 
The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Wow. Tells me something about the Lord's plans for a person's life. The Lord knows the plans that he has for us, it says in the scripture. Not plans for calamity, but for good, for prosperity. God had a plan even before the foundation of the world for David. And God caused him to be born at just the right time so that at the time that uh, Saul disobeyed the Lord, God would begin to raise up this new child who was going to be king over all of Israel, take Saul's place. But before the Lord uses a man, he has to train a man and he prepares a man. And before David could ascend to the throne of Israel, the Lord would need to save his soul. The Lord would need to develop his character and train him to lead the people of God. As I mentioned, David was born as the youngest of eight boys. And as he grew, he was despised and rejected by his own brothers. They treated him with contempt. You could almost say that he knew sorrow and he knew grief as he grew up in that family. How do we know that? Well, one day, many years later, when David was about 17 years old, he went to bring a lunch or supply to his brothers out in battle. And he visited them on the battlefield, and they mocked him when he came to them. He saw uh, the dilemma that Israel was facing. He saw the battle uh, lineup, and he began to ask questions about it. And they mocked him for asking questions. And they, they, they treated him like, you little shepherd boy, what are you doing here? You know? You're the, you're the leader of a few sheep, David. And, uh, they, they accused him of being proud and as being naughty, as the, uh, old King James would say. Basically, you know, you, you just get out of here. You're just a, a pest. That's how they treated him. Well, it seemed like this mockery was common because David responded to them this way. He says, what have I done now? What have I done now? In other words, you guys have continuously treated me this way since my birth. What have I done now? I've, I've done nothing wrong. All I'm asking is a simple question. There's a cause. There's a, there's a problem here, and I'm trying to figure out what it is and how I might solve it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you pass, go back to your little sheep, would you? Why, why have you treated me this way now? You know, as the youngest of eight, and possibly the youngest of ten, um, with the two sisters, he was probably picked on by his brothers and sisters. Now, without shaking your head up or down or sideways, kids, don't raise your hands, but you can smile, okay? How many of you are picked on by your sisters and brothers? Some of your older people, put your hands down. <laughs> All right. Picked on, looked down upon, because he's considered themselves to be mighty warriors and David to be just a simple shepherd boy. It seems that even his father didn't think too highly of him, uh, or at least think that he would amount to too much. Uh, we'll look more at that next week. So we're talking about character and character development. And uh, the first area of character development in any of us usually comes from our own families, okay? You are 
who you are in part because of your family. Now, I'm not getting into psychology here, and I'm not going to tell you that what you need to do is examine your family and why you're the way you are and blame your mother and blame your father for their upbringing. That's what psychology does, okay? It's just stupid. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this, that your your family environment um, forms your character in part. In part. Not wholly, but in part. Families. Sometimes it's hard to live with them. Sometimes it's hard to live without them. For some of us, we have had a very healthy, strong, loving family relationship. That's good. It's good to have that. But many people grow up in families that are splintered. Sometimes they grow up in families that are harsh and cutting, uh, abusive even. Words spoken by parents or by siblings. Sometimes the scars of poor treatment remain with us all of our lives. And some people seem to nurse these offenses from childhood all life long and they never get over it. And yet others have an amazing ability to grow in character in spite of the upbringing that they've had. And that's what we see in David, that he was able to overcome any kind of teasing, any kind of abuse, any kind of um, uh, being picked on, and any kind of uh, lack of, of expectation that his parents had of, of, his, uh, of, of his life. How we view ourselves and how we view others is often based on how we were treated in our own families, how our family treated us. Maybe there was jealousy because of favoritism. You know, how come he always gets to do that and I never get to go there? You know, jealousy. Sometimes um, there's rejection because... Look, she's just smarter than you. What can I say? Okay? She's just smarter. You know? He's more handsome than you. She's prettier than you are. Okay? Now, sometimes those things aren't said quite as plainly as that, but you feel them all the same. Okay? Sometimes people speak about, you know, guys that have a full head of hair, and boy, it hurts. (laughs) Just kidding. Maybe you're not as smart or as skilled or as good-looking as your siblings. Maybe you feel slighted because you're the youngest. Or maybe you feel stressed because you're the oldest. You know, uh, It could be any number of these things that, that affect you. Well, you'll be happy to know that you're not alone. Many Bible characters successfully overcame mistreatment from family members, and David is one of them. As we study Bible characters, we want to learn from their successes and uh, avoid their failures. How did David deal with being despised and rejected? He turned to the Lord. He turned to the Lord. Just like, jo- just like Joseph did many years earlier when his family rejected him. And we know that this is what David did because his thoughts are recorded for us where? In the Psalms. Okay. The Psalms are a wonderful testament of David's inner character and his inner life. That's one of the things that we love about David, that unlike many other characters of the Bible, we see events in their life. 
And so we have to guess at times what they were thinking or what they were, they were um, going through, and we can guess pretty accurately by what they did, because what they did tells you what they believe. But with David, we don't have to guess too far. Okay? We see what he did, but we also see what he thought, what was going on inside of him uh, in the Psalms. And so much of David's character and inner life are recorded for us there in the Psalms. As a composer, as a writer, as a singer, David penned his innermost thoughts, and we get the benefit of learning how to deal with trials and difficulties in life. So we learn about the outer circumstances David faced in books like Samuel and uh, Chronicle, Kings and Chronicles, but we learn about the inner workings of God in his life in the book of Psalms. If David was troubled in any way by the thoughts that his family had of him, he took great satisfaction and comfort in the Lord's thoughts of him. So let's take a look in one of the Psalms, Psalm 139. Over the next few weeks, we hope to look at quite a number of Psalms and uh, learn about David's thought processes here. Lord, my brothers don't like me. They treat me poorly. They despise me for being a shepherd while they're out there battling your battles. My dad doesn't think too much of me either. Here I am with all these lowly sheep. (laughs) He didn't have sleeves in those days. You know, (laughs) he probably just wore a tunic. But this is how he responds to it talking to the Lord, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. Actually, the the term there is better translated, you knit me in my mother's womb. uh, Joanna, you knit. Yeah, others knit here. Okay, there's a lot of work involved. God is, he's saying, look, you took pains in making me. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. That's a figure of speech for in the mother's womb. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Imagine that, that God thinks well of David. Imagine that, that God thinks regularly of David. In fact, God thinks so much about David that you couldn't even count the number of thoughts. It would be more than the sand of the sea. And the same thing could be said of us. That's the kind of intimate care that God has for each one of us. You know, when you put life in perspective and you say, well, my brothers don't like me. My sisters were mean to me. My mom and dad said some bad things to me. Okay. And then you go back to a passage like this and say, yeah, but God thinks of you. God cares for you. God loves you this much. You know, what difference does it make what your family thinks? Honestly. 
And so David had that as his perspective. This is part of character development, by the way, that it's to realize that, you know what, we, we have this phrase that uh, you, you grew up with probably, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. The idea of that little ditty is that, you know, get over it, okay? There's a bigger thing in life here, and that is that God loves you. God cares for you. God is intimately acquainted with all of your ways, and he has a plan uh, for your life. We spend so much of our life worried about what other people think of us. We compare ourselves with ourselves, and our assessment is faulty. The important thing in life is not what do others think about us. What does God think about us? And for that, you need only go to the cross of Calvary and see what God really thinks of you. He loved you so much that he sent his son to the cross to die on the cross for your sins, to make you whole, to make you one of his children. Think of the cross. It puts everything in perspective. There on the cross, you'll see one hanging on a tree whose love for you cannot be comprehended. God demonstrated his own love toward you in that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. That's how much God thinks of you. That's how much God cares for you. What difference does it make about all the skirmishes that happen in the family? Our acceptance before God has nothing to do with our heritage. It has nothing to do with our parents. It has nothing to do with our looks. It has nothing to do with our gifts or our abilities. For those who have believed in him, the Bible says we are accepted in the beloved. Just as David was chosen by God, um, so he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. If you want something to drive away the blues, to wipe away your tears, to set your feet on a rock, then spend the afternoon in Ephesians chapter 1 and see what God has done for you. David knew nothing about being in Christ, and yet he was one of the most jubilant personalities in all of the Old Testament, thinking, uh, knowing that God thought about him long and often. So David lived at home with seven um, brothers, two sisters, both parents. Jesse had um, inherited probably all that... Um, either all or a good portion of the, the land that came from Boaz and Ruth. And so he was set up pretty well with uh, crops coming in. They kind of ventured out a little further than just being farmers to being shepherds as well. And so he gave his sons responsibility of, of shepherding. And at this point in David's life, uh, he went out likely and helped the other shepherds, and he began to become familiar with shepherding and all that was involved in that work. And he seemed to really have a heart for that work. So the second area of character development, the first area comes from family. The second area of character development comes from our work environment, or our skill set, if you will. It seems that God was at work in David's life from a very young age, and he was preparing David to become the shepherd of Israel, to shepherd his people Israel. What better way to do that than to train him with real sheep, to teach him how to deal with real sheep, and he would become uh, a good shepherd of the people of Israel. Angelo, you could tell us a lot of stories about 
shepherding. You spent some time doing that. Uh, I understand that shepherds, uh, I mean, that sheep need a lot of attention. And uh, a good shepherd attends to the needs of the flock. I'm also told that sheep need a peaceful surrounding, that they're very skittish, that they, they're, they're, they're frightened easily. And they need to um, have peaceful surroundings so that they'll eat, so that they'll drink, so that they will reproduce. And they need to be protected from enemies because they're defenseless. Uh, you know, sheep, what, what can they do, you know? And so they're defenseless and they need uh, protection. The Bible talks about sheep drinking from still waters. We need grass that is free from noxious weeds so that they can enjoy it without becoming sick. Um, they need a keen, watchful eye to correct wrong behavior, such as a shepherd's rod or staff, you know, the shepherd's crook that takes people off stage when they're bad. Just checking. Um, they need a good, watchful eye. It's a 24-7 kind of a job. You read about this in the scripture that um, uh, the shepherd must keep or must help the ewes uh, to give birth and make sure that the ewes feed the, the lambs. It involves watching in the day and it involves watching at night. You remember that it was to the shepherds who were abiding by their flocks at night in this very town of Bethlehem a thousand years later that uh, the angel of the Lord appeared and first announced the birth of Christ. So even a thousand years after David, there were still shepherds uh, abiding in their field watching by night. Now, when the sheep are at peace, there is a fair bit of downtime for the shepherd. You know, once they're settled, they're eating, they're sleeping, whatever they're doing, they're, they're comfortable. The shepherd's got a lot of downtime. And it is when we think about David's free time that we learn a lot about his character. So what did he do? What do you do with your free time? What goes on in your... Who has free time? You do, actually. And those who volunteer their free time in service uh, for others, they impress me. People who spend time studying the Word of God in their free time, they impress me. And I think David used his free time wisely. Now, David is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to 10 years old at about this time as we're moving through his life. And um, it's probably when he first started helping the shepherds. And I think he really loved the sheep. They really became almost his pets. And when the sheep settled down to sleep or to eat, David would get out his sling and he would go down by the, the brook or the waterway there and he'd pick up smooth stones and he'd practice, target practice, you know? I mean, he's just sitting there. He's watching the sheep. Everything is peaceful. And he would take it and he would set up some kind of a target away from the sheep so as not to scare them. And he would try it. And he would master his slingshot. He would master the ability to, with one shot, knock whatever that target was right off of its place. He became a master at it. He had a lot of time on his hand. Okay? Some of you have shot guns. Some of you have shot rifles. And uh, it takes a while to master it, to get it on the bullseye every time. Okay? And that's even using a scope and everything else. You know. Here it was, just a sling. And off it goes, you know. 
The sling would prove to be effective in scaring off predators. And soon the Lord would use this skill to deliver Israel from her enemies. David also used the time wisely by learning a musical instrument or two or three or more. David, named after David of the Bible, I'm sure. Also a musician. How long does it take to master a stringed instrument? Give me a number. I was hoping you'd say a lifetime. (laughs) Four or five years. Yeah. Or more. Yeah. And then to be able to compose music, to write music, to sing music, and to learn multiple instruments, you're talking about a very long time. But if you've got the time to do it, it's a very worthwhile venture. And David did that. Probably out in the field, he would compose songs about creation, about nature, about God. And we have many of his uh, songs to this day. And we still sing some of these 3,000 years later. What are the chances of a rank amateur getting an audience before President Obama? Zero. Okay. What were the chances of a rank amateur appearing before Saul, the king? Zero. Okay. He was very skillful. It took time. It took um, a, a lot of uh, his free time. And he became skillful. In fact, it says of David that he was skillful in playing. So we learn that David was diligent in all that he did, whether it was target practice or it was practicing a piece of music. He disciplined himself to refine his skills. He was conscientious about all of that. Well, you have a work to do, just like David did. David's work was to to, uh, care for the sheep. David's work was to take care of his father's business. And you have a work to do too. And so I want to ask you, in your work, because character development comes in our workplace as well. Are you diligent, disciplined, and attentive uh, to the work that God has given you to do? Maybe it's schoolwork. Are you diligent in that? You say, what's the point? Schoolwork is so boring, so hard. That means that you haven't been in the real world yet. Okay, You haven't had a real job yet hard you know i remember bill mcdonald saying that when he was at college he took several courses as minors latin i go wow latin as a minor you know uh english and uh writing and he wondered at the time what is the point in taking these courses little did he know that at the time that the lord was preparing him for his life work his major was was actually finance was banking uh, was money. <laughs> and here's the guy who couldn't give it away fast enough. Okay, he failed that course in the world's eyes, but won it in the Lord's eyes. But his life work was really developed, uh, even in the diligence and discipline, the long hours of struggling over verb tenses and all the rest, to form in, him, form in him the skill he needed to be able to write over 80 books and bless millions of people through his writings. God is at work in your life. And every one of you is an individual. And God knows your individual strengths, your individual skill sets, your individual um, weaknesses. He knows it all. And He, right now in your life, is working and developing in you what He wants to use in you 
for His glory and for your good. School is frustrating at times, but so is caring for sheep. And yet the Lord can use either for your good and for His glory. You have a work to do. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's learning a musical instrument. Maybe it's caring for your children at home. Are you diligent, disciplined, and attentive to the work? Remember the words of the Lord, He who is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in that which is much. David's diligence early on in his life here in the, out in the uh, fields was the preparation of God for his work as king. The Bible tells us that the Lord has prepared a work for us to do. After we are saved, he has a work for us to accomplish for him. And God has an uncanny way of harnessing our gifts and our skill set for his work. Whether you're a scientist or a welder, uh, a businessman or a housewife, a teacher or a nurse, whatever it is that's, whether you're a white collar or blue collar or you have no collar at all, okay? God is at work harnessing your skills, harnessing your trade or your abilities for his glory. God said to Saul through Samuel, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. Are you that man? Are you that woman that God wants to use? Is your heart fully inclined to do his will? If it is, don't be surprised if God taps you on the shoulder. Calls you to greater service. The Bible says this, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider your great work, Lord, we are impressed and we cry out to you with praise and thanksgiving. Lord, we thank you that you saved us, that we might serve you. And we know, Lord, that you are at work in all of our lives, each one of us, and that you have a particular plan for each one of us. Lord, we pray that none of us would miss that plan. None of us would hear the words that Saul heard, that the Lord would have done this for you had you obeyed. But Lord, we want to hear the words uh, that were applied to David, that, that you're seeking for a man or for a woman whose heart is inclined to, after the Lord's own heart. And Lord, we pray that we might be that man or that woman that you use for your glory. We pray, Lord, that we would uh, have eyes to see what work it is that you have for us to do for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.